Well, good morning. Welcome to JVO Press. My name is Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. Uh, me and Pastor Richard and several elders uh, were at uh, Portland yesterday at Sunset Press for our regional district meeting, so I'm excited to be back. Our flight got delayed, but we all made it back on time for this uh, important Sunday in the life of our church. Uh, please do stick around for the congregational meeting afterwards. Uh, if this is your first Sunday back in a while, welcome. We're going through a short eight-week series right now called Everyday Disciples, where we're talking about living the day-to-day -day Christian life in step with the Spirit. And uh, over the last couple weeks, we looked at prayer as a way of life, as a rhythm of life. And then last week, I suggested to you that learning is not just information, it is immersion and imitation. And uh, so learning is a way of life. And this morning, we're going to be looking at connecting as, the, as a way, as a rhythm of life that all of us, regardless of our age, uh, need to tap into. So we're looking this morning at one of my favorite passages on connecting and community. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So with that in mind, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us about Christian community. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Hear God's word, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated as we pray together? The Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus that you would give us understanding and insight of your word. Uh, but Lord, even more importantly, we pray that we would love your word and conform our lives to what it has to say. Uh, Father, even now, would you widen our hearts more and more to hear what your word has to say and the courage to live it out in our day-to-day -day lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Why is it so hard to make friends after you turn 30? Why is it so hard to make friends after you turn 30? Uh, that was an article published by the New York Times way back in 2012, and it was so, it's so poignant that I actually recently republished it in total because it was such an apt, timeless topic. Why is it so hard to make friends after you turn 30? Uh, well, I don't have to convince anybody in this room that community and connecting are in short supply right now. And yet the irony for Christians is connecting with other believers in a more real and visceral way than how the world connects with people is inherent to the Christian experience. One of my favorite books I ever read on discipleship is called Spiritual Mentoring, and it was written by two professors at the Seattle School of Christian Psychology. And what they write in this book is, chapter one, it begins, and they remind us that Christianity is an imitative faith. It's a faith of imitating people. It is passed down from person to person, parent to child, spiritual mentor to new believer. All of us, if you follow Christ, have had older Christians showing us the way of faith. I mean, even all the way back to the beginnings of the kingdom of God, Jesus enters the world. And what is Jesus' best-selling book? 
Well, he did, he is the Word incarnate, right? And he, he is God, so he inspires the Bible. But what does he actually spend his time doing? Well, John 1 tells us that he tabernacled among us. He moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson famously said in the message. He moved into the neighborhood and he did life together with people, primarily the 12 apostles, but also all of his disciples. And he instilled them a rhythm and a way of life that he called the kingdom of God that was built on his kingship and his lordship. And he commissioned those men and the women disciples to go out and show other people what it means to live a life in step with the Spirit. And those people, the, the apostles, have given us writings that show us the way. In fact, that was the first term that people ever used to talk about Christianity. You can find that in the book of Acts, that they called themselves the way. It was a way of life, a rhythm of life in step with the kingdom of God. Jesus passed it on to people, and those pass it on to more people, and even down to you and me. We are discipled, and we are called to make disciples. Christianity is an imitative faith because learning is not just about information. It's about immersion and imitation. And uh, I do like baptizing babies, so that is the closest you'll get to me saying something about immersion, okay? Just kidding. We do immerse. If you want to get baptized, we will immerse you. So what does it take to have true community? Well, it's a wonderful article. If you, if you take the time to go read that article from the New York Times, there's so many visceral examples, but they interviewed uh, Dr. Rebecca Adams, who's a professor of sociology and gerontology, which I think is the science of aging. And uh, she's a professor at UNC Greensboro, and she says in this article that since the 1950s, sociologists have said there are three factors that play into deep friendship and deep community. And these three things, since the 1950s, sociologists have identified are, is physical proximity, repeated unplanned interactions, and a setting that encourages people to let their guard down. That's what forms deep friendship. That's what forms deep community. And this also explains why our deepest friendships and our lifelong friendships and our deep community is primarily experienced in what stage of your life? While you're a teenager, but also more profoundly, usually when you're in college or you're in your early 20s. Because you're in physical proximity with a small group of people, you have many unplanned interactions and you're in a setting that encourages you letting your guard down. And I'm willing to bet if I asked you for your five closest friends, many of you would go all the way back to high school. Anybody say their friends, their deepest friends, go all the way back to middle school or high school or college? Some of you even know who my best friend is. He looks just like me. Some guy at Presbytery was talking to me like I was Zach Washburn. I didn't have the heart to tell him that wasn't me. I was like, there's, there's another six-foot-three white guy who's the same age with the same kind of hair and beard and glasses, but he doesn't live in Jacksonville. He lives in Corvallis. But I became friends with Zach during college, and I was in his wedding, which happened right after college, and now 18 years later, here we are. Well, what we're seeing in this article is, and what I want to suggest to you is that at some point, community starts to get very difficult. 
and it can get very discouraging. And, you know, this article makes all kind of arguments for why it's hard to connect with people. You know, they suggest that maybe around the time you turn 30, an internal switch is flipped, uh, where your focus ceases to be about your friends and it, fo- and it focuses about your spouse or your kids or your career or your aging family. And then around the time of 30, you start thinking about your career in a new way, so you're willing to relocate and you're willing to get out of the physical proximity of the people that you knew. And so those acquaintances you had maybe start to go into the back burner, but maybe you cling to just two or three that you had from childhood. And those are the people you reconnect with on Facebook, those early friends. But what I want to suggest to you is that each one of us, uh, in, in, in ways that maybe some of us feel more than others, but each one of us has a deep yearning for connection, uh, for connecting with people, but we don't always know where to find that. And because we don't know where to find it, it can be very discouraging. And, but what I want to suggest to you is if you look into the book of Acts and you study the Christian way of life, connecting is inherent to the way of life that we are living. Uh, you know, Jesus says these words. I mean, this is what is on Jesus' mind on the night that he is betrayed. This is the high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus prays this for you and me. He says, Lord, that they may be all one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says, Lord, just as I am connected to you, Father, may all of the people that are living the kingdom life, may they be one, just as I and the Father are one. I mean, Jesus is praying for the unity of the church, for deep connection for his people. And then notice that in John 17, 21, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, Francis Schaeffer, you know, the founder of the Labrie communities in Switzerland during the 70s where, you know, people who were sort of like, you know, the early deconstructionists, people who were leaving their faith, they could go and live in Switzerland and ask all kind of deep questions uh, with Francis Schaeffer and his wife. Uh, he said this, he said, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Let me read that again. He's talking about Christian connection. He says, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether the gospel message is true. Christian community is the final apologetic. So what I want to suggest to you is, Connecting is inherent to the Christian life. Uh, God says that we should love one another as God loves us. And you can't love people you don't know. And you can't love people that you won't make eye contact with. And you can't love people that you won't forgive. And you can't love people you don't really know. But the hard part is we get to know each other and we realize what? They're just as messed up as we are. But in more annoying ways. Right? But friends, what if those, those moments are the moments of actual gospel growth? And what if you working through those things is the apologetic of your life, the argument for the faith of the truthfulness of the gospel? So let's look at connecting. And I think there's several things in Acts chapter 2 that are worth talking about. Uh, you know, this is not just information, okay? I can give you all the information, but this is, the, the only way you'll know if this is true or not is if you immerse yourself in this way of life and then you start imitating it, right? So I can give you the information, but you've got to um, appropriate it for yourself. So let me give you some uh, suggestions on how to wait, maybe find a new rhythm of life. 
Uh, under the category of sort of life together, uh, look, at, look at verse 42. What is the Christian life? How do we do life together? Well, notice in verse 42, this is the early church. Uh, so they're still sort of figuring things out. Things aren't perfect. Just, you know, read about Ananias and Sapphira in a couple chapters in Acts, and you'll find out things are not perfect in the church. Uh, they are not perfect now, and they weren't perfect 2,000 years ago, but they were on to something. And they're on to something that's worth imitating. And so what are those things? Well, verse 42, it says the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, which in Greek is koinonia, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So what does that mean? Well, the apostles' Uh, teaching, right? We have to understand who the apostles were, right? So we are all disciples of Jesus, right? If, or if you follow Jesus and if, if you've given your life to him and been baptized in his name, you're a disciple. You're a learner. You're trying to follow the way of Jesus. But an apostle is a different kind of office that we don't have today. Ephesians chapter 2 says Christ Jesus built the, the temple of God's people. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? So there aren't apostles today. The apostles were a primarily specific group of men who testified to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And they had apostolic authority that superseded just what anybody else's interpretation was. And we have the apostles' teaching, the authoritative teachings. And you know what it is? Lord willing, it's in your lap right now. It's the New Testament. That's what the apostles have given to us as those people living the imitative faith of Jesus. The apostles' teachings are given to us in the apostolic writings. Matthew was an apostle. The Gospel of Mark comes from the apostle Paul. Luke studies all of the apostles. He learns off of Paul. Excuse me, Mark was from Peter. And then, of course, John is an apostle. So we have the apostolic teaching right in front of us. And so what does it mean to live in Christian community? Well, it doesn't just mean we're in the same socioeconomic class or we're all the same uh, you know, ethnic group. What it means is we are a group of people who have committed to studying and trying to live out the apostles' teachings, right? That the Bible itself is the thing that unites us. And the apostles, you know, this idea that they're, they are unique. Notice how uh, uh, Acts chapter 2 talks about them. Right? It says that um, in verse 43, it says, Awe and wonder came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done. Through whom? Through the apostles. Right? So that's what are the things that give apostolic authority to them. This is why Peter can say things like, um, Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ rise up and walk. And this focus on the apostles' teaching is all throughout Paul's writings. So if you were to read 1st or 2nd Corinthians, you'll notice that Paul says, I am an apostle, and what I am saying comes not from me. I didn't learn it from any man. It comes from Jesus Christ. And so as we form Christian community, uh, it's not just an idealized version of an existential yearning for people and connection. The foundation of our Christian community is the apostolic teaching. That's what the early church gathered around. What is it that the apostles are teaching us that we can imitate? And we have that today here in Scripture. All right, so the other thing they devote themselves to right there is it says it's the fellowship. It's the community, right? There's multiple translations of that word in, in Greek, koinonia. But it could mean community. It could mean connection. It means fellowship. 
And the way that that starts to work itself out, if you read this in context, is if you go into verse 44 and 45, what kind of things are Christians doing to demonstrate fellowship with one another? Well, they put their money where their mouth is, right? (laughs) What they start doing together in their life together is they start caring for each other in their financial needs. They start to be a community marked by glad and generous hearts towards one another. They start to sell the things that they have. They get their priorities out of the way, and they make other people their priority. They love the brotherhood, right? Our Christian community is the final apologetic. Our love for one another is the best argument for faith. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How does that verse end? By your love for one another. So what are we supposed to see in this generosity? Well, let me just suggest this for you. If you want to grow in Christian community, this is going to sound counterintuitive. This is going to have some cognitive dissonance, okay? But I think it works. This is, I'm going to give you a, a proverb. And a proverb is great because when it works, it really works. But it doesn't work all the time. That's the art of wisdom, Right? Sometimes the early bird gets the worm, but sometimes you need to leave well enough alone. Both are true. Wisdom is learning when to apply the proverb, right? But this proverb is true, and it comes, uh, I'm going to suggest it's true, but it comes not from me, but from uh, the non-U.S. president, Benjamin Franklin. The greatest president who was never president said this, he that has once done you a kindness will be more ready to do you another one than he whom you have yourself obliged. Now, what is the Benjamin Franklin effect? Sociologists call this the Benjamin Franklin effect. And what is he saying? Well, Franklin would argue that the way that you have connection with your neighbors is not doing your neighbor a favor. Because if you bring your neighbor's trash can back, what happens next week? Now they're obligated to do what? Bring your trash can back. And now they resent you. And you know why? Because they're in your debt. So that, oh, yeah, so I, don't, I don't take things from people because then I owe them. So I will be independent and never receive anything from anybody because if I receive something, then they will, I'll, I'll owe them. And so what Franklin argued was that if you want to really make good neighbors, you know what you do? You knock on their door and say, will you do me a favor? Do me a favor. Can you take my trash can out? And you know what he says to their neighbor? Oh, fine. Okay. And you thank you. But then when they're done, you know what happens? In for a penny, in for a pound. They're more emotionally connected to you because they've already made a commitment to you. So they're more willing to do the next favor because in for a penny, in for a pound. It's called the Benjamin Franklin effect. And the idea is if you want to actually have connections with people, have them do you a favor. And in them blessing you with their grace, you know what happens? They actually love you more because they've made an investment in your life. So if you don't let people do things for you, if you're too proud to accept grace from somebody, it kills community. It kills community. You see, what it takes in the early church is it takes generous Christians having grace and humility to sell their possessions and give it to somebody. But it also takes what? grace and humility to accept it. 
You know, there's other cultures in the world that if you were to refuse a gift, it's like slapping them in the face. Why? Well, because in me giving you a gift, I'm showing my love and showing my investment in your life. It's, I'm saying you are worth this, and I'm going to make a long-term commitment to you. So what I want to suggest to you is as we grow in fellowship, um, I don't know that all of us are struggling financially, but I do think that many of us struggle to want to be independent and not take things from people. But friends, by refusing to take things from people, you're, you're disallowing them to invest in your life. And they want to be gracious to you. And in fact, by being gracious to you, their love for you increases. It increases. That's how the fellowship grows, is by generosity and humility. You know, this, this came to a head for me uh, just a couple weeks ago because I was talking to my buddy Zach, who's a EPC pastor up in Corvallis, and I said, hey, you've been there for seven years. You're going to take a three-month sabbatical. Where are you going? And he said, I don't know. We have nowhere to go, and we want to take three months off. And I said, well, Zach, you know, you need to, like, ask for some money, man. Like, we, you need to ask all of your friends. We are, we're in this covenant group. To, just ask us for money, and we'll all pitch in and, like, help you find a place to rent. And he's like, no, 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 no. He's too proud, right? And I said, Zach, I said, it is my honor and my, it, is, it is a blessing for me to know that I could contribute to you and your family having a summer off. Like, why would you not let me bless you like that? Let me love you. And you know what he said? He said, okay. <laughs> and I said, really? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, no, Zach. And then I repeated my argument because that's the kind of thing I do. And he goes, okay, I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. You've already convinced me. I'll send out an email and ask for money. And I said, thank you for letting me love you, right? And now I'm going to be more invested in his sabbatical because we're going to contribute to it. So friends, this is, I think, what's at the heart of the Christian community. In the giving, in the giving, the love grows. And in the giving, the, the, the fellowship grows. Does that make sense? The other thing I want you to focus in on uh, when it comes to this kind of community is notice how much food comes up. Did you notice that? They're all about food. He keeps mentioning it, like Luke was hungry when he wrote this passage of Scripture or something. <laughs> we'll look at verse 42. What do they devote themselves to? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which for you and me is Scripture in front of us. That's the basis of Christian community, discussing, applying, praying God's Word. To the fellowship, right, which is being generous towards each other, but also receiving each other's generosity. And then it says, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I pray that every discipleship group and Bible study, it should always, always end with prayer, with real prayer, praying for one another. Prayer is a bonding experience. But notice right there, what is that breaking of bread? Well, yeah, I know it's hard to believe, but commentators are split on it. Does that mean like dinner, breaking of bread, or does that mean communion, the breaking of bread? Well, for us, of course, it means both. But at the end of the passage, it almost certainly means dinner time. Look at verse 46. Day by day, these everyday disciples, you could say, we're attending the temple together and breaking bread where? In their homes, and they received their food with what? 
glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, I've talked about tables and meals before, but it's worth reminding you, Adam and Eve were, were created and they were planted where? In a garden. And a garden means what? Food. And food means what? A table. And a table means what? Fellowship and belonging. Tables are kingdom places. They are sacred places. We were made gardeners. We were made to make food. And we were made to make tables. And we were made to share food with people because that is a place of fellowship and belonging. I mean, think back to the whole Old Testament. I mean, what is the Passover? It's a meal. What do the elders do when they behold God on Mount Sinai? When the 70 elders join Moses and Nadab and Abihu and Aaron, you know what they do? They break bread and they behold the glory of God. When God makes man and woman, what does he make them? Gardeners. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, where is he? At a table. When Jesus wants to show that the gospel of God's grace is open to all kind of people, who does he sit down and have dinner with? People like us. Pharisees, religious hypocrites, but also prostitutes. People like Matthew. Because a table means fellowship and belonging, and it's an invitation. And I know I harp on tables a lot, but so does the Bible. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, you know that beautiful thing about, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? In that same chapter, you know, there's an issue with one of the apostles. St. Peter is refusing to eat dinner with Gentiles. And you know what Paul has to do? Paul has to say, remember the gospel that in Christ, all of us are brought together, Jew and Gentile, male and female, black or white, slave or free, and you are not keeping in step with the gospel. That's actually what Paul says. He says, you are not in step with the gospel because your dinner practices are wrong. I mean, think about that. Your table is a place for fellowship and belonging because humans have an inherent need to belong and to connect. So what does the early church do? Well, they share meals together. They take communion together because tables are places of connecting, not just with God, but with each other. So let me just finish then, I guess, with a couple of warnings about community and connecting. And uh, this warning comes uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a wonderful book called Life Together. Anybody ever read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer? If the cost of discipleship is too intimidating for you, read Life Together. It's like 90 pages. Uh, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer loved small group ministry. But it's interesting, as you read Life Together, he issues a lot of warnings about how to experience Christian community. And one of the warnings Bonhoeffer gives is he says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. What Bonhoeffer is getting at is, I think, the natural tendency is to try to have absolute agreement and perfection and connection on everything. 
We want people who look like us, who root for the same sports teams, who are in the same socioeconomic class, and hold every single similar theological point on everything. And what can happen is we can idolize and idealize what community is. But what Bonhoeffer would argue is that's actually what kills community. Instead, what creates community is choosing to love this group of people that God has put in my life. And I'm going to love them. And God is going to do a mighty work in our life. You see, the Christian community is not based on anything that this world knows. It's built around the gospel of grace. That we are sinners redeemed only by the blood of Jesus. And it gathers a really strange group of people together. Y'all are strange, and so am I. I mean, Lord have mercy, I'm from Alabama. And now I'm living in Oregon. It gathers a strange group of people that are not united by the same socioeconomic status, not by the same places we go on vacation, not by the same color of our skin or ethnic background, but by the fact that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And that creates in us generous hearts. You know, in that New York Times article, they were interviewing all of these poor millennials who just couldn't figure out community. Uh, there's a lady uh, who's 32, and in lamenting her inability to create a community around herself, she said this. She said, you know, it was so sad. At our wedding, uh, other friends of ours uh, who were seated with this very wealthy couple complained to us afterwards on our wedding day at the, about the couple because this friend group that we were, you know, this couple that was trying to interact with all of our other friends, they started asking everyone else how much money they made. People who made less felt uncomfortable discussing it. And the people who made the same or more just felt like it was weird to talk about it no, so nonchalantly. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's see, easy to see how taboo that would be. But friend, I think if you have a Christian lens through your eyes, you'll realize that what is that couple doing? They are yearning for community. They're yearning to connect with people. And the only thing that they can see through is wealth. That's the only lens that they've got. They're in the grip of vice. That's the vice that's got them is wealth. And so what they're looking for is they're looking for people who do what? Love wealth. So they can maybe go on vacation together and they won't feel so, you know, bad. Do you make as much as me? Um, okay. And if that sounds silly, do you listen to that? They interviewed another lady from London, Thayer Prime, who was a 32-year-old consultant. And uh, she ended up creating a 100-point scale of friends. Anybody want to be her friend? She says she would dock new friend candidates as they begin to display annoying or disloyal behavior. Nine times out of ten, guess what? Her friends don't make the cut. They become acquaintances. She says in the interview, this is amazing, she actually says this. This is a quote. You meet somebody really nice, but if they don't return a call, they immediately drop to 90, you know. Oh, the humanity, right? <laughs> didn't answer a call. If they don't return two calls, immediate 50. If they're late to something in the first month, that's another 10 points off. <laughs> Friends, we all have a yearning for connection. We do. It's inherent to humanity. We all yearn for a place at the table. But friends, only the gospel creates the kind of community 
that actually doesn't make it all about us. You know, C.S. Lewis, I love C.S. Lewis. He said, you know, if you aim at earth, you get neither heaven nor earth. But if you aim at heaven, you get heaven and earth thrown in. If you make an idol out of community, you know what you're going to do? You're going to ruin it because no one's going to be your perfect match. Or, or you're going to look for things like your socioeconomic status to be the thing that connects you. Or you're going to look for anything. You're going to figure out a scale to grade your friends on. If you make an idol out of community, you'll kill it. But if you aim at the gospel and grace and you choose to love the people around you, you get God and you get community. Does that make sense to you? I mean, when T.S. Eliot converted to Christianity, when T.S. Eliot, the poet, uh, when he became a Church of England member, he wrote a a play called The Rock. And in this, I think this is his point, T.S. Eliot says these words. He says, what life have you if you have not life together? There is no life that is not in community and no community not lived in praise of God. You know what Eliot's getting at? You may think you have community, but it's not really community. It's not. Because all community, to be true, has to be in praise of the one true God. Uh, friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gospel that connects us. Uh, Lord, we lift to you now all of our uh, discipleship groups and Bible studies and all the other community groups and Bible studies uh, that are represented by the people in this room and watching online. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would not make an idol out of those communities, but at the same time, Lord, we pray that they would be centered on your word and on prayer and sharing meals. Lord, that we would experience fellowship. Lord, that we would be generous both in our giving, but Lord, I pray that we would be generous in our receiving as well. Now, for those who need community, Lord, would they find it here and would we grow more and more uh, as a Christian community? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.